Welcome to the Room of Lives. I'm your host, Neil. Today I'm talking with Loredana Kerstea, who is a Romanian programmer and has been developing for Ethereum and other blockchain projects for several years. What are all these nonsense words, you ask? Well, you must have heard of Bitcoin. Normally, the way our worldwide digital payment systems work is that some central entity like Visa does all the computation and bookkeeping to track everyone's payments and balances. This is a lot of power and responsibility to put in a centralized entity. The Bitcoin algorithm allows a distributed population of anonymous strangers to verify and track digital payments worldwide. So it has the potential to displace these private central entities and has created quite a stir in the last few years. In this podcast, I have previously interviewed Lynn Ulbricht, the mother of Ross Ulbricht, who was sent to maximum security prison for creating the first Bitcoin-powered dark web marketplace where people could trade anonymously. Now, the design that Bitcoin uses is called blockchain, and some smart people realized that it can be used to decentralize many other applications, such as banking, finance, insurance, ticketing, certification, government, and selling JPEGs of chimpanzees. They also had the brilliant idea that instead of building a different blockchain for each of these applications, they could design a single blockchain to be programmable in the same way that general-purpose computers today can be programmed for many different applications. The first such blockchain to emerge was Ethereum, a decentralized, open-source programmable system of trustless verification and open bookkeeping worldwide. Since its inception, Ethereum has brought about a revolution. It has fostered a global community of developers who have been making it faster, cheaper, and more efficient and also building various applications on top of it. Many new ideas and research in blockchain technology, cryptography, and economics has also come out of the Ethereum community, and today it is a vibrant worldwide platform and ecosystem. But it has its fair share of the challenges of greed, gimmick, speculation, misinformation, and tribalism that weighs down the crypto world. Loredana struck me as a very unusual person in this world. Most crypto developers today are men working in emerging companies with big capital and marketing. But Loredana seems to be a lone wolf working tirelessly to build great volumes of publicly available software for free. To date, she has 242 YouTube videos and a blog where she explains and demonstrates her work and her views on life and technology. To me, she seemed to be driven by a strong determination that comes from some ideological core. I was intrigued, so I decided to interview her. Unexpectedly, she wrote back quickly and agreed for the interview. In this first part, Loredana shares the political and personal circumstances of her birth and childhood in Romania and why she was motivated to cultivate self-reliance and independence from her parents and direct access to truth. Then we talk about developing for Ethereum. She shares her philosophy for volunteer work and her experience in contrast to the rest of the crypto space and culture. 
we talk about her work on the Laurel Project, which is a blockchain that tracks provable human effort, such as volunteering, as a non-transferable medal of merit. And it is to be used for governance, proof of effort, provable news, etc. At the end, I ask her to share her vision for the future of Ethereum, the internet, and technology and society in general, particularly in the context of fake news and deep fakes that can pose a big challenge to the truth. So thanks a lot, Loredana. Is that how you say your name? Yes, Loredana Kirstais. It's how I would pronounce my name in my native uh, language. So Kirstia is how you say your last name? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And and what pronouns do you use? I don't have any special pronouns. Okay, okay. So like, uh, yeah, okay. So I can use like she, her for when I describe the podcast? Yeah. Sure. Okay. So this morning, I actually, um, I noticed that, you know, I found that quote on your blog. Uh, what was it exactly? I was born in the midst of the gunshots of the Romanian revolution. And I looked up when that was, and that was like December, 1989. Um, yes. So Correct. I think you and I were born the same year because I was born in hmm. May, 1989. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, oh, so by the way, uh, I really did not expect that I would get such a quick response from you and that like mm -hmm. in just a couple of days, we would be having like this uh, <laughs> Zoom meeting. <laughs> I had no idea that this would work out. Um, but so I, I usually was... try to respond fast. If, uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I was looking up a little bit about the Romanian Revolution. And it eventually led to the overthrowing of the, what's his name, Susescu, or? Nicolae Ceausescu is how you would say his name in Romanian. Yeah. Usually in English, uh, they pronounce it Ceausescu or something yeah. of the sorts. So the thing is, I had heard about that overthrowing multiple times because it was like a very mm -hmm. dramatic event that happened. Yes. And yes. the first time I heard about it was... You know Banksy, who's this artist who makes graffiti? He has this yeah. book uh, called Wall and Peace. Mm -hmm. And in that book, there was um, a little description of how the whole thing happened. There was like a mass gathering. And some person started chanting, like, down with whatever. And so it was like... Oh, yeah. Like, I think, that, I think like, it's about his last... Uh, his the the last time he spoke to to the audience so it was um it was on a balcony and the people were gathered yeah. around like they would gather outside and that's when for the first time in his life the people were chanting against him and he yeah. he didn't really it it seemed like he didn't he couldn't realize he couldn't comprehend that this was happening because his perception was that the people were were with him yeah it, the, the, yeah, it's a, it's it's an interesting video to yeah. To I see saw the, how I saw the video also. Yeah. At some point, like the camera starts shaking and it just like cuts off. It was, yes, uh, it was pretty crazy. But yeah. I can tell you that even now, after 
30 plus years, we don't know the entire truth of what happened at that point in time. Yeah. Because you usually hear these stories of, uh, okay, there was a revolution, the people, they won, yeah. hooray, yeah. but it's not, that, it's not that simple. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. To give you just a small detail, th the people were very unhappy because uh, what Ceausescu did was to pay our entire external debt that Romania had towards other countries after uh, the Second World War and, and afterwards when we had some reconstruction. Anyway, the 1989 was the last year uh, and we had zero debt at that point in time. So it was very convenient to, to get rid of him exactly at that moment. And of course, the, the population was very unhappy because to pay the external debt, they, they suffered a lot of um, not having enough food, not having anything from, from the outside. Uh, even uh, hot water was two hours mm. per week, if I, if I can remember uh, correctly. So it's, it was good for us as a people because then... Uh, we had access to so many things from from uh, from the West and and from America. We are very influenced by by American mm -hmm. culture, and then we had the internet, which was yeah. ev an even greater thing. Um, but things are not uh, are not that simple, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think because we had um, the security. Uh, I, how can I, I don't know exactly the word in English. Um, the Communist Party had this uh, security forces, which were the, the secret police, I mm -hmm. can say, mm -hmm. which was a thing. We now have a lot of uh, documentation on this. And I know people who were um, even uh, uh, followed in by neighbors, by it. It was a whole thing with people spying on each other. Yeah, yeah. Um, but these people helped. Uh, actually have the revolution and they were the ones who eventually killed the dictator. Yeah. But this is also a, a karmic death of my people. And one effect of this was that the corruption that was in the, in the Communist Party continued, but you didn't, it was under another face. Mm -hmm. And we still have a lot of, uh, a lot of internal wars with corruption even now. It's, we have not yeah. gotten rid of, of those uh, older demons that we had back then. Could you give me a little bit of an idea, you know, about your background? Like, what are the settings? You know, where were you born? You know, um, what were the circumstances in which you were growing up? What was life like for you um, as you were growing up in Romania? Could you, like, paint a little bit of a picture mm -hmm. of um, your, like, life background? So, as I said, I was, I was born on the 15th of December, and uh -huh. on the 16th of December, that's when the revolution started, um, the, wow. first, uh, the first seeds were planted in Timisoara, which is in the west of the country, and then by uh, the 25th, it was in the whole country, and on the 25th, it's when uh, Nicolae Ceausescu was, uh, was killed. Um, and I was in the uh, neonatal uh, ICU, the intensive care unit, because I was a premature baby. Um, it, 
that's how I was born and I had to stay two weeks there. Uh, and from what I know, my mother just saw me when she uh, delivered me and then when she took me home. And for the two weeks there, I uh, had no, no contact with, uh, with her. Uh, I do think maybe that that has a bit of a, has had maybe some effect on uh, on myself, but I haven't determined exactly what what that was. Uh, but it's a re recurring pattern in my childhood uh, that I would stay a lot of time alone. Uh, so this is one thing that uh, I think gave me a lot of time in my childhood to reflect on on life, on death, on who I am, on who uh, I want I want to be in the world. So. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. quite an important part of... Uh... Yeah, if, it, if I could interject here, and uh, at any point, if I'm saying anything that, you know, it's like too personal or whatever, you can just like cut me off. But I was reading this blog post that you wrote about the... What was it? Disabusing yourself with the mm -hmm. dictionary. And yes. my idea of the the picture that I got was... I mean, I might be wrong. This might not be what you were trying to communicate. But it was an idea that, you know, you can't even trust your parents. And the picture that I got from that, um, that blog post was basically an idea where you like pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, as they say in English. It's like the only thing that you can ultimately um, depend on is some kind of like a neutral and objective avenue to truth. You can't even trust like someone like your parents um so i was sitting and thinking about a little bit about like you know what is the possible like kind of perspective that you have on the world and how is it shaped by you know your relationship to your parents so yeah yes because parents are people yeah and in the same way that we have flaws they have flaws um the interesting thing in your childhood is that for for some years, uh, you look at your parents like they are gods for you, because they have they give you what to eat, they take care of you, um, you abide by their rules, and you some sometimes a lot of times you don't even question if the, those rules are uh, correct or actually you question, but um, maybe you don't have an environment where you can actually express those concerns. It can happen and it happens in, even for people who are self-aware. They, they, sometimes they're not self-aware. It's hard to be self-aware all the time. Mm -hmm. So I think the moment you find out that your parents can be wrong is very important because it, it's the first window into this larger world because it is large, even if you don't see it from, you know, from the confines of your house. So, yes, that, that story was about the, the little uh, lies that parents can tell children in order to make them do the, the right thing, something mm -hmm. that they think it's the right thing. But I think these uh, small lies, like saying that Bugs Bunny uh, tells you to eat carrots, okay. um, they eventually compound into, into something else. We, we need, as children, we need truth. We need actual truth and data so our brains can actually process and find find answers we don't need pre-digested answers mm. we need the data so we can 
parse it and figure out um, what we need to do in life, basically, and how we need to interact with others. And if we're, if we're fed data that is not correct, it, it affects us. We don't even know exactly how. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so going back again, sorry, I like kind of interrupted you. You were telling me about your life background. Yeah, so I can say that uh, initially, because it was after the revolution, life was, uh, um, was my, my parents didn't have a lot of money when I was a child growing up. So I didn't have toys. Mm -hmm. um, and also, I didn't want to go to kindergarten, for example, and I told them that I can just stay alone in the house at four years of age. Um, and somehow my mother actually listened to me and she said, okay, let's, let's try this out for one day. Let's see. At four years of age, I knew how to lock the door. I even knew how to, um, put my food on the, on the stove and light the stove, make sure it was uh, closed and so on. And my mother would call me uh, each five minutes, what are you doing? Uh, have you eaten? Have you closed the stove? Go lo look again and see and, and things like this. Um, but this, uh, this meant that I was considered a, a responsible person at four years old, which was actually made a, a very big difference in, in, in my life. And um, but also it comes with the drawbacks of getting through your childhood fears, which are very normal at that age. Um, I also had anxiety because I was alone and when I heard sounds coming from other people and uh, things like this. So it's, a uh, uh, there are good and bad sides to, to this experience, but I think it, it shaped me because I just had to stay with myself and entertain my mind, create stories, think about uh, various things in life, about my relationship with my parents, about even going to what I would do if I would run away from home, for example. How would my parents react to that? How would other people? What would happen if I would die? Uh, how do I feel about this? How would my parents feel about this? And so on. And it offered me a perspective that um, was more detached. Hmm, because yeah. at that point in time, you don't have a lot of responsibilities. So you're not, in, you're not so ingrained in the, in, in the world. You don't have so many emotional connections that usually are, tie you down a little bit to, to this life. So uh, remembering the perspective that I had back then was very helpful when you find yourself in the midst of, of, uh, of life being, you know, pulled in one way or another. <laughs> and, and in short, to, to, to get past this, uh, this period of time, um, I had the chance to, to work with a, a very good, uh, uh, teacher in the first four, uh, grades, which I think she was, she was very correct um, and meritocratic in, in the classroom uh, and she encouraged, she was mostly on uh, a math teacher but doing poetry also so hmm. I really liked uh, her and I really liked school due to her. So I was 
fairly good at math, uh, not that great. I wasn't uh, in the you know top uh, list at Olympiads and stuff like this, but uh, I liked math. Um, eventually, I went to medical school, even though I liked math for various reasons. And then I ended up, uh, after graduation, I became a programmer full-time. And I dedicated a lot of time to, uh, to build projects and become as good as I can at, uh, at this. Um, and I already told you, I work 12 to 16 hours a day usually. I've worked like this for, for a long time. Yeah. Um... As you were talking about this, like, kind of early life experience, uh, the idea I'm, that I'm getting is kind of like an orientation towards, like, radical, like, self-reliance and, like, not depending on, or not depending on, like, trusting, basing things on trust. And I'm wondering how much of that has to do with the values of this, like, decentralized trustless technology like, do you see that there's any link between your like your life values and the kind of technology that you're into? Yeah, of course. When when I first when I first saw Ethereum, I didn't completely understand what uh, what it did. But eventually, I I got to understand the high level of it, and I thought that the culture fits very well with yeah. what I was trying to do up until that point. Um, at that point, we were. Uh, me and, and a friend were uh, looking into creating ontologies, especially medical ontologies, um, because ontologies are they're the basis of what you can build uh, as as software infrastructure. Well, and could you we were describe for me like what is ontologies ah, here? Ont ontologies are just uh, it's like a vocabulary with uh, a relationship between words. Okay. And okay. so we were we were using these, for example, for uh, medical imaging projects where you had images and they were labeled and interconnected. We wanted to interconnect information. So this is uh, what we were doing at, at that point in time. Uh, and we, the, the vision that we had was about an interconnected internet. Mm -hmm. So you'd go to one word and find out a whole array of other information that was linked to that word and so on. And then we eventually realized that this cannot be done without decentralization because oh, okay. it's it's not good to have uh, only institutions or companies that uh, have for example a restrictive license on words on terminology so then that was a big problem in the in the medical yeah. field yeah i see yeah so it uh, it it fit the vision about how the next uh, next society will be with more responsibility on people and also with responsibility also comes a bigger voice mm -hmm. yeah. and and vice versa so how early was it in the history of ethereum that you kind of started getting into ethereum and uh, how was it that you started getting into it did you like just like you know start developing stuff or what, what was that like so i I uh, found out about Ethereum in 2016 okay. and it took probably half a year later. Um, in 2017, I actually applied for a blockchain job and I got it. 
um, and it was with a with a company that was doing payment channels infrastructure for uh, for Ethereum. So it, it's one of the scaling solutions. It's it was the first real scaling solution um, that was put forth in the ecosystem. And uh, yeah, I I worked for them almost two years, even doing an, an ICO, an initial coin offering. I worked on, I was the lead for the smart contracts and also uh, planning various parts of, uh, of the projects. Like you have, you have these monitoring systems for the smart contracts that would do some automated actions on behalf of the users, because with payment channels, um, the server, the, the node that you uh, you keep, you need to keep it all the time online. So you had the you, you can have these services that do some some of this work of keeping uh, keeping them keeping the services online for you. So this was um, it was an interesting project, and it got me. Uh, access to a lot of a lot of knowledge about ethereum and even conferences and uh, connection with uh, with other software developers from the ethereum foundation and, and so on mm. yeah but and... I, I i eventually resigned from the company in 2019 yeah and is that the time that you started like building things like mostly on your own uh, yes, well, I was doing that even uh, while while working. So one one of the projects that started this pipeline, uh, I was already working on it uh, since uh, even even before I resigned. Yeah. Um, and the the efforts and the the obstacles uh, are different when you work in in a company that's paying you. And then you have all this freedom to actually pursue uh, what you think is moral and, and correct. Then you have other, uh, other obstacles and uh, other joys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I wanted to ask you about a little bit more. That's also one of the reasons that I was interested in interviewing you, because it seemed like well, you know, I haven't really gotten into this like Ethereum space. I have not got to gotten to any meetings or conferences or anything. I just have like this obsession with the technology mm -hmm. uh, since I started kind of understanding. Um, yeah, a, at some point I started like a couple of my friends were really into like blockchain and whatever. And for a long time, I was like, what the hell is this thing? I don't even understand why are you so, what is this? And he could, they could not ever really explain the whole thing. And mm -hmm. at some point I started learning by myself, what is a hashing function? And why is it hard to invert the hashing function? Oh, okay, all right. So, oh, this is the basic proof of work thing. Oh, okay, I kind of start to understand how the thing happens and why it's hard to have um, decentralized like ledger system as opposed to mm -hmm. something like BitTorrent. If you just have to share multiple copies of a thing that's not very hard but if you have to like like if you have like a file that can be spread to multiple people that's not such a big problem but if you have like money then it goes from one account to another 
it can't, the, at the same time you cannot send that money to like three different accounts you can't like double spend so i was like mm-hmm. okay so i start, i'm starting to understand why this technology needs to be like a little bit more sophisticated so i kind of learned about it i kind of gave a talk about it at the university to my friends just because i wanted to practice understanding it and since then i have been kind of like hooked on the ethereum reddit it's not the best quality stuff out there mm-hmm. <laughs> like the reddit discussion but i kind of invested in ethereum and i kept tracking what are the things that are people are building um and it's just been like a kind of obsession for me since then and i am i'm nowhere i don't have the expertise to like understand the details of this stuff and at some point i just realized that i'm just going to draw a boundary that my knowledge is going to be this at this popular level of i kind of know what's going on but i don't know any of the details and that's fine you know um also i wanted to understand enough to make sure that what i was invested in was like not something completely bs yeah. and over time like okay no this is not bs i kind of understand so in just in it's observing this community online and just reading about the articles and things like that it kind of seems to me like this is a time when like a lot of like companies are emerging within ethereum and basically uh they are working for all of this what my i might call startups that have carved out some niche and they're like we're going to work on this thing it's like a scaling solution or some kind of an interoperability solution or some application on top of ethereum okay we're going to use like ethereum to sign in blah 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 etc and they are all like companies and i don't know how many people they have but it's not like a one person thing that's not what i see most mm-hmm. of the time um so that's why i felt like your experience is kind of unique i don't know how many other people are out there that i just don't know about that are just like developing stuff on their own i know a couple of other people who are probably doing like you know some solo projects but they seem to be like even if they're doing solo projects they're like much more tightly connected with like other groups and collaborators and things like that and but in your case it seemed like you were the one that was just doing the most like solo stuff but i'm not entirely sure if that's correct um so uh, could you tell me a little bit more about you know how much of that is true and what has been your experience is it like kind of a unique experience for someone in this ethereum space to be developing stuff on their own if you compare yourself to other people that you see so i i think the the unicity is not necessarily the alone part but the volunteering part mm. um i implement everything alone but i have a friend who does software design he likes to uh, to meditate on what's possible to to build with these technologies and what this what society uh, would need and i bring most of these ideas to life um and we do this without wanting to to uh get paid for it mm. especially that a lot of this work goes into the laurel project um so the work is at times collaborative when especially when we have these discussions where we agree what we want to implement but mostly it is me staying 12 16 hours at the computer trying to uh to implement these things and sometimes i do videos yeah 
so do um, you have yeah sorry sorry go ahead but so this was this was for at least one and a half two two years uh but for the fa the, the past three months um i have been actually helping evmos which is a blockchain that combines uh, the ethereum virtual machine with the cosmos ecosystem yeah. and i have been i have been doing this also as a volunteer uh, as part of through the laurel project and um because at at some point uh the laurel project has a good chance to to also use this technology um for the blockchain that we are doing for volunteers so i'm i'm doing two things here uh if it's a technology that we want to use i want to to contribute to it and also contribute to it as a volunteer because this is what I also ask of people who would want to join the Laurel project. Hmm. Um, and what's uh, what's what's interesting about this technology is that it it could become like the original dream of Ethereum 2.0 because you have um, most like the like Ethereum is now, but when you integrate it in the cosmos ecosystem um, you can have sharding and you can have multiple execution environments like ethereum wanted with uh, with ewasm so uh, here you can have uh, also the evm and you can have a cosmos uh, wasm and and other things hmm. so this is uh, what i have been working in the past uh, three months and i'm uh, i'm implementing a way that developers are rewarded for their work on the smart contracts through the protocol level. So when when you deploy smart contracts, if people are using them, uh, part of the gas cost goes to you as a developer. Yeah. Which I think I think this is a a very interesting thing because usually in the blockchain space, at least you you need to to go to the team that maybe has a fund then you need to tell them look i'm building this can you please approve me in your program but if you have this at the at the protocol level it's more meritocratic and you yeah. you're not uh, uh, depending on i don't know maybe some some networking some some social yeah issues or networking issues or uh, things like this so uh so the lower project is now in in um, in a time where it collaborates with other projects that have um, also a good heart in yeah. at, at the core, and it's yeah. hard to find this in the in in the crypto space. I want to to mention something else because we've talked about so many things and. Um, I didn't I didn't actually say that the Lo the Laurel project has an implementation, and it's oh. used at least by me. To, to improve it has connections with uh, Twitter for example and each time I accomplish a task that I that is recorded on the blockchain you also have a tweet uh, with a bot saying exactly what you did with links and proofs and uh, it has already been tested by uh, by uh, several volunteers that have um, um, entered the project and have uh, helped us with uh, some uh, some things like uh, um, having uh, a, a license written by someone who is an actual lawyer or, you know, things like this. Mm -hmm. And uh, people who have um, 
used tools to make uh, to make dabs and so on. So the we have a very good alpha prototype to actually keep track of the work that's that's done in the project. So mm -hmm. we are at the point where we use um, the software to build the software. So that's, this is one oh, I see, I see. Uh, I see. one things that thing oh. that I'm uh, yeah. very proud of. I guess as they say, you're eating your own dog food. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's good. So I want to get to your perception of the culture of the crypto space, but let's talk a little bit about your motivation behind the Laurel project a little bit. I think, you know, I've been reading some articles since I started reading about Ethereum because Ethereum is not just about technology. It connects to a lot of like political questions, economic questions, questions of resource and policy and things like that. And it connects to a lot of kind of like open problems in the realm of, you know, think about politics or economy. And one of those problems is sustainable open source development, mm -hmm. uh, which is also in different words, it has been called the problem of like public goods. Um, how do you fund or what do you call it? What was that called? Or whatever. I kind of forgot. But like, you know, how do you, how do you fund something mm -hmm. where it's going to become open source so it's not going to like just like directly benefit you? And I've heard of this problem in the context of science and research as well. Uh, like, you know, you spend a lot of time doing research and what happens some of the time is that then all of this work that you put in and maybe there was like public funding that went into your research but then what you do is like the business model is you publish in some journal and some of these journals are not open source. So basically then you have to pay a subscription to that journal to gain access to the fruits of my like intellectual property and the body that makes like profit from that is this journal who did not really put as much effort into. Okay, they put some effort into like the peer review and everything. But it's kind of unfair that they then get to have like this walled garden thing that shields out like pretty much all of humanity who is not affiliated with the university from the results of this like science that you do. And so a lot of scientists are like, no, we want to publish like open source. But then what is the business model for that? And I heard of something called Research Coin. I don't know if you mm -hmm. ever heard of something like that, where I think the idea is that um, there's going to be some kind of a system that keeps track of what paper has cited, what paper, etc. And then anytime that you use the results of some paper or something, there is some kind of a, a compensation and the program automatically determines not only to pay the authors of that paper, but to pay a fraction of that to the authors of the cited papers and a smaller fraction of that to the authors of those cited papers, etc., so that it kind of trickles backwards, maybe a couple of steps. And so yeah. it seemed like a completely new and radical idea of how to fund open source research without being dependent on like centralized entities like journals and things like that. So I think this is like a very interesting question because once there is some kind of a solution to this, it opens up so many windows for like, you know, open source. It's just going to incentivize open source development, open source science and whatnot. Uh, sorry, I just got like so carried away. 
Uh, no, this, this is this is very good, and it's it's similar to um, one of the projects that we started at some point, which is a, a moral license for yeah, open yeah. source. Yeah, I was looking and at it that was, yesterday. Yeah. And it was a, it, it's the same principle as what you said about scientific research. It's if you are using uh, the work of someone else and you get donations, for example, so it would come with a software. You, you get donations, then you trickle down those donations also to uh, the work of other developers that you've used and, and, and so on. Um, but with, uh, with, a, with a caveat, so I would like, uh, for example, software to be able to have a moral license where, where you can say as a developer, if you use this software for um, unethical, immoral things, then I will, I will get the license from you and you cannot use it anymore. Hmm. So it the idea combined two things, uh, a, a moral license that you can enforce on, on your effort um, and uh, rewarding other people in a, in a transparent way. Mm -hmm. Because this is what one of the things that, that blockchains have and have very good transparency. You can have transparency on the blockchain. So there are a lot of use cases for this, especially in the, in the public domain, not in the private domain, but in the public, where you need to prove things uh, to other people. And this is one thing for, for research and for open source, there are very good use cases. Yeah. So coming uh, kind of like personally to your experience. So right now, as you said, you are volunteering a lot of time and effort in developing what are basically like open source technology, right? Um, so, but you're not getting paid for that. Not, not all of it is, is open source because I'm, I'm doing a volunteering effort at this point. So some, um, if the, the Laurel project would have a lot of visibility, this would be one, uh, one thing that I would like to really have it in the open, in, in open source. I see. Um, but up until it, until that point, um, we are doing a lot of new things, and um, it's not. Ev we don't want to put it out there right now. Yeah. But eventually, it should. It's it's open source for volunteers in the Laura project. Yeah. yeah so I that's um, yeah, yeah, yeah. we have a bit of a walled walled yeah. garden at this point. Yeah. So how how is um, uh, compensation working for you because if you're not being paid for all of these hours and time of, of effort that you're putting in then like how are you managing to like sustain uh do you have like some other source of something from some other work that you're doing one thing is that i consume very little yeah that's one thing that actually allows me to uh to volunteer at this point in my life and two, um, I have, I, I, I could have enough money to live mm -hmm. some years without uh, needing to, to get paid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a, it's a choice of austerity mm -hmm. uh, when I am working on, on the Laurel project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so now uh, let's talk a little bit about contrasting your experience to what you see as um, 
you know what the rest of the crypto space is like so a lot of them have these like companies and things like that who have like raised a lot of money through ICOs and things like that and a one thing that i notice is that you know there will be people there whose job is to like write medium articles or things like that basically anytime they make some kind of a technological development to spread it through like all kinds of social media and everyone's like oh my god they're like doing this and whatever and it like comes as this big flashy explosion and like compared to that my idea is like i cannot get into the details of what you're doing but it kind of feels like your work has like a lot of substance for you know the amount of marketing it's like oh you just like post a video oh you just did this oh wow okay but uh so it seems like the culture is a little bit different so how do you feel is like the rest of the ethereum culture is it like kind of like gimmicky it's like is it like too much hype or i'm not close enough to that so i don't know exactly what it is like so i i do you could say zero marketing yeah uh so the difference is uh, is is big and um indeed a lot of the things that are presented in the in the crypto space are very flashy Mm-hmm. and they seem to be they get people enthusiastic on things that are if if you look from a technical perspective they're not really that they're not either they're not innovative or they're mm-hmm. not that much effort but they know very well how to to promote it and um get people very enthusiastic about it it's and it, it can be easier to get people enthusiastic about it when you tell them, well, you can make a lot of money with us. <laughs> yeah. It's less uh, easy to make people enthusiastic about volunteer work. And mm-hmm. the words uh, duty and effort and uh, let's make society tools for an unbiased society. Um, but it, it doesn't matter. I, I take my, my work more like a, a duty of what I want to to push out into the world. Hmm. And if this has success, I'll be very happy. If it's not, you can just look at it at a work of art. Yeah. And it's from from my perspective, I'll be happy that at least I I did uh, I did my duty and I yeah. will not ask myself what if. Uh, That's kind of interesting. So when we were growing up in India, one of the things that we heard, one of the sayings, it's kind of from Hinduism, but it's just like a philosophy. Uh, And in Bangla, which is my first language, it goes like, Karma koro, haler chinta koriyona. Karma is like karma. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. what it means is like, do the work, don't think about the results. Like, just do your work without mm-hmm. becoming attached to what the consequences of that work will be. And that's like, it's like pretty hard to do that if you're like putting a lot of effort into something to be detached from the results, to possibly be always open to the idea that it's not going to go anywhere and nobody is going to pick it up and it's not, you know, people are not going to use it. But to still be able to continue doing that, um, it seems like there's like a little bit of that reflection or that perspective when you're working on something. So like, yeah, do you find that kind of hard to like? Yes, of course. It's 
and now it's easier just because I've worked um, I've worked on this idea and I've had time in the past years but uh, one year ago it was it was hard it was harder to it, you need to be able to accept the idea of failure but don't exp accept the idea of failure by not doing your part mm -hmm. you can fail if if uh, because of I don't know the the context that you're in is not the right context maybe you're too early maybe etc but at least you shouldn't fail because you did not do the the effort yeah what what I am sure with the work I do I do is that by staying on the cutting edge then there is a high chance of success mm. if you are on the cutting edge and you are looking a couple of years in advance and imagining the next society um, and this is very important when when you don't have a lot of uh, an entire team of people to to work on this but if you if you are sure you can look ahead then you you might have time to put everything together until the right time comes mm. um, but again it is very important to be to be de detached of, of uh, yeah. these results because you can, uh, yeah, you can you can become demoralized. You can, and yeah. I need to to wake up each day feeling fresh and uh, joyous in a way about what yeah. what I'm building. Otherwise, you cannot do it long term. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. I I get so that I think is one of the advantages of kind of working by yourself is that even though it's like hard and daunting, as far as the idea is concerned, you can like be as ambitious as you want. And you'll be, you'll be like, okay, this is what I envision and I'm just gonna work on this, even if it seems like it's, you know, nobody else is along for the ride. Whereas compared to that, if you're working in a company or a group of people, you have a lot more like manpower to like put into the development and it's probably gonna progress faster. But since it's like a group of people, it the, depends. You uh, can have teams of more people that mm. don't progress faster ah, because it's humans are very good at making up pretexts for for not uh, doing yeah. things. Yeah. You would be amazed, yeah, I, but yeah, I yeah. think you know you know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what I was uh, trying to get at is like I think your ambitions get a little bit locked because you know now it's like a group of five people who all have to agree to work on that. And they like three of them, I think, no, that's too wild. You know, there's no immediate like um, use case for this. And we need to build something that, you know, whatever. So maybe it, the, the ambition gets a little bit more conservative when it becomes mm -hmm. diluted across like a group. So like I see like that's kind of like a one of the trade offs. But the other side, which. I've kind of been feeling a little bit when I go through the posts on Ethereum, the thing that I feel a little bit bummed about is that some of those posts where, okay, they have made some technological progress, but now they have a person to write like a flashy medium article with like a picture or whatever, some memes and things like that. And they have raised a lot of money and they have some kind of coin associated with it. It gets a lot more visibility and hype compared to, for example, when I see some of your posts uh, on the Ethereum subreddit, it seems like a lot of work, but 
the amount of response or attention is like much lower. And I understand because you don't do a lot of marketing, you don't have like a team. So does that ever like bum you out that, you know, your work is not like, do you feel like your work is not getting as much visibility or adoption or whatever um, as it should, given the quality of the work? Of course, and it used to bother me more. But mm. let me ask you a question. Why yeah. do you think that is? You know, I, in order, this is, I was hoping to get a fuller answer from you because I don't completely understand what the Ethereum culture is like. If I go on the Ethereum subreddit, of course, it's like filled with a bunch of like, like the speculators and, and mm -hmm. people who are not really into it. And they just want to read about, oh, is the price going to go up or down, whatever. So there's a whole audience for that hype. And mm -hmm. I see a lot of that hypey audience, but I don't have a direct connection with like the community of developers. And I would hope that the community of developers are people for whom like, you know, actual substantial development is important. So they're actually going to pay attention to what's really being worked on. So I don't know if that is the case. Like is the community of developers at least like more responsive to the stuff that you're doing and they see and they understand, oh, there's like real value in this, regardless of what like the rest of the audience thinks. So if the developers are not that interested in your work, then I don't know wh why, because I feel like those are the people who should be through that wall of hype mm -hmm. and be able to see like more deeply, um, like what is going on, etc. What I can say is that um, while I was working for a company in the industry that also had a lot of money, um, I made some connections even with core developers for the from the Ethereum Foundation and other people because I was working in um, in a shared office space with multiple uh, crypto uh, companies, mm -hmm. and I um, I went to a couple of these parties and conferences to DevCon etc. Um, at some point I. I had good relationships with uh, with other developers, and I even got to present my work on Pipeline, which was uh, one of my first projects. A very interesting thing of a visual uh, diagramming system for uh, batching transactions, connecting transactions. Um, but this did not uh, keep up when I was volunteering. Mm. Um, I got, I started getting less and less support and I, I think that the two are related. So Ethereum likes to collaborate with people who, uh, get grants from, from the ecosystem, because this is one thing that they can do very, very well. They can give grants, they can pay that they, they have, the eco ecosystem has a lot of money. Mm. So once you start to be independent, from, from this perspective, and um, I also brought some criticism towards how Ethereum is governed because it, it's governed more like an oligarchy than an, an actual decentralized organism, mm -hmm. um, which I, I thought this is what Ethereum wanted to become, an mm -hmm. actual decentralized organism. Mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't really like that. So 
I had some criticism that was not uh, received with an open heart. Mm -hmm. um, and what can I say? I don't uh, have much support from, from the developers in the ecosystem. And if you saw my Twitter account at this point, um, I think I at this point I have some followers, but uh, one week ago I, I only had one and I kept only one follower. I uh, removed all the followers that I got from, from this uh, blockchain domain just because um, I didn't see support for volunteers. Mm -hmm. And this concept was not, was not really understood. Yeah. So just, just finding, uh, for example, a team like Evmos that was actually received uh, my effort, even though unusual in this space, it received uh, it with an open heart. Mm -hmm. which was uh, was in interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, like, does the whole, like, culture in Ethereum, like, does it make you angry? Or are you like, nah, okay, we just got to work with this? Uh, it, it made me angry. Yeah. Um, after this uh, much time, I'm... Uh, it, you need to to be at peace with other people's decisions. Yeah. I didn't create Ethereum. I'm mm -hmm. very uh, happy about, um, about the fact that it was created and it brought so much attention to decentralized tools. Mm -hmm. even, even this, um, this, the amount of money that, ha that the industry has, at least has brought attention to, to these concepts. And I think that's an important part. Mm -hmm. um, but money isn't isn't everything and it's it's not going to to save any blockchain from being outdated in the future mm -hmm. so we need to to see that these tools um get developed and are not blocked by just the sense of let's make more money let's build yeah. casinos let's build games we need to see these tools being used for, for example, anti-corruption purposes, for mm -hmm. proving purposes. This is, yeah. this is what I find important. Yeah. So um, given that there are all of these different issues that we see today in this like Ethereum or like in general decentralized tech space, one is, you know, the thing that you mentioned that although the technology that people want to build this like the de decentralized there's actually somewhat a locus of power and like you know it's kind of like an oligarchy so that's one thing i would say there's a lot of like uh unwholesome incentives like money for example a lot of people are in it for money and they're just they're impatient with the blockchain the, with the development work or oh, when is when is this gonna happen oh my god how how why are you taking this long when is the price going to go up, blah, 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 etc. So there's those uh, like speculator uh, people. And then there's like a lot of bad reporting. So when I read about like articles about what's going on, I'm like, oh, my God, who are these people who are mm -hmm. reporting? It's like bare minimum work that you've put in. I, I'm not even in this field. I can read your article. I'm like, oh, my God, come on, like work a little bit harder than that. And, you know. So there's bad reporting and it spreads a lot of misinformation. 
particularly among people who are kind of in it for the money, they're just going to like hunt around and find whatever. And they're like, you know, they're mm-hmm. not, they're not that very patient to go in into the subtle details of what exactly is going on. It's like, oh, price go up, price go down. So there's like all of these things. Uh, given all of these issues, how do you feel about the future of, let's say the future of Ethereum and decentralized technology? Do you think it's going to overcome these hurdles and become something that, you know, it's like good and like, you know, serves its purpose or do you think it's kind of succumbed to these like flaws? For Ethereum uh, specifically, if Ethereum does not innovate at least um, at the same pace with the Cosmos ecosystem, for example, Mm -hmm. which already has uh, interconnection between chains, for example, and uh, some on-chain governance, uh, they will become like Bitcoin is for Ethereum. Mm. It doesn't mean that it will disappear. It doesn't mean that people will not still be interested because with Bitcoin, we, you cannot develop too much on it. Mm-hmm. But people, it, it has a very high price and, and, and so on. Um, but I would wish that Ethereum becomes meritocratic. This is this is my wish and not oligarchic. So if they would decentralize, for example, their technical processes, uh, the Ethereum improvement proposals and so on, uh, that would be a very good step. Oh, but isn't the Ethereum improvement proposal process like decentralized? Like anyone can propose it? Anyone can propose it. It depends if uh, if there are enough people to review it. Ah, okay. uh, when when I when I tried to um, to have some of these proposals for a generalized um, typing system, mm-hmm. um, I had a very hard time getting people to yeah. uh, to to merge them into into the repository because they don't allow volunteers to have access to review and. Uh, be an an editor it's mm-hmm. usually people who are paid by uh, by the ethereum foundation this is what i'm saying about uh true decentralization versus uh, a type of, of oligarchy which mm-hmm. can be well-intentioned but uh, you don't have a feedback process that's in place yeah yeah but in um in general i think these decentralized tools are the dawn of of a new society Mm-hmm. A new society with more responsibility mm-hmm. on the individual and um, a larger capacity to 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 take decisions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, from like a more zoomed out picture, like a big picture, I see already. First, I think the internet was a kind of decentralization of power. A, B, what the internet and and websites like Wikipedia and Stack Overflow did was a decentralization of the power of knowledge. And I mean, it's easy for us to underestimate the power of that because, you know, we were born in 1989, but there were like generations before us whose source of knowledge and what's true is basically vetted encyclopedias and things like that, which were written by some like, you know, close group of people. And so they were the authorities. And at some point, the internet arrived and became like cheap and affordable means of interaction. And it kind of, it was like it returned a lot of the power to the people. 
well, I'm kind of talking about the early days of the internet. Now mm-hmm. it's become kind of like a semi shithole, but <laughs> because corporations have come in and, you know, but um, like Wikipedia was actually like, it was like a radical experiment. And now of it's course, easy and to we, understand. Wikipedia was done by volunteers. Yeah, yeah. So what that did is like, it basically opened up the doorway to knowledge for everyone. And not only did it open up the doorway of knowledge to everyone and it's like free, it also showed that, you know, you can crowdsource information and you can create articles that are about the same quality or better. And it's like more updated better. And it's not just a mass of garbage. You know, Wikipedia is not a mass of garbage. Like even academics keep going to it all the time. Like, wow, how did that happen? It's just like people sitting at their keyboards and, and doing this. So I think what a information technology and the internet has done has reinstilled a lot of confidence in the ability of, you know, the, the people. So as I trace the evolution of what technology is doing, this decentralized technology seems like kind of the natural next step. It's like, okay, information has gotten there. How do we do this with like, you know, value exchange? We still depend on like centralized entities for that. How do we uh, change that? So in a way, I kind of feel like, yes, decentralized technology is kind of the natural next technology for us to explore because uh, it kind of seems like the direction that the human organism is moving towards. This is not out of the blue. If you just look at the previous technologies, that's also what it's doing. That's what we want. That's what people want. And there will be some setbacks or whatever in the middle but this is definitely the direction in which more people are going to be happier um, in the future. Would you agree? Yes, and, and, and yeah. if you look at the early days of the internet, you also had the boom back then. Yeah. You also had a lot of companies who uh, maybe made a lot of money just because they could say that they are web companies, internet companies, and so on. So it is very similar. and. Yeah. It's it's actually interesting that from from all this uh, web to internet you you say about Wikipedia, which I think helped a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And Wikipedia is a volunteer effort, mm-hmm. in in essence, it's just the effort of people who, as you said, stood in front of their computer and poured their their knowledge and their time and their research into these pages. Mm-hmm. And I remember very well uh, the time before internet because I uh, even though it existed. I uh, had access to internet probably after 14 years of age, maybe uh, 15. So it took it took a while for uh, I think same for, for me, me for me to have. Okay, yeah. so I, I remember the time before it, or the time when internet was very very slow and you yeah, yeah. you didn't even yeah, know yeah, what yeah. to search. I think we we yeah. we were born in the same year, and we grew up in the same time also both in like developing countries in families which did not have a lot of money so the experience would have been different for example for someone mm-hmm. in the us they would have had a yeah. lot of early access to this technology but i remember at some point we had this like a uh, dial-up modem that would connect to the internet using your telephone line and we would go like and then if someone got a call it would like get dropped and everything and i would sit there wait for like images to load slowly yeah, so I kind of I kind of remember that, and uh, this is kind of an aside, but I feel very nostalgic for like some of that early part of the internet, 
because it had not been commodified and commercialized so much. The corporations had not gotten into the internet yet. And I feel like what happens today on the internet is that some big corporations have figured out algorithms to harvest your attention and kind of like addict you in some ways, whatever. So if you look at the internet consumption by people and break it down by what websites, there's going to be a couple of websites or whatever apps that take like maybe 90% of like human attention. And the rest of them are like way lower. Whereas the early days of the internet, it was much more like a gallery. Oh, you just go to people's blogs, things like that. They were not powerful, rich uh, corporations figuring out algorithms, how to get everyone's eyeballs in this thing. So I feel like I used to encounter a lot more easily a lot of different people's things on the internet in the beginning. And it was not constantly riddled with like super shiny stuff. Like, you know, like well, I remember the time when like, like, you know, YouTube at the end of a video, it would just stop. That's it. But now, and eventually what happened was that at the end of a video, they started showing pictures of like other videos. So make it more likely that you'll click on one of them. And then at some point they were like, okay, no, we're just going to start playing the next video. So it's like all of these different corporations are competing with each other to harvest your attention. And that kind of gallery where people are just curating their own stuff is kind of receded into the background. I don't know why I'm going off on this, but I do feel a little nostalgic for the early days of the internet. It's, it's true. We need to also acknowledge the other side of, uh, of things, of how much effort these companies have have put in to actually build pro up these products. Yeah. It's, I think, as hated as, for example, Facebook is or Twitter, it's incredibly important that we have a place where we can find each other. Mm. And we can, a lot of uh, protests have been, have been possible just because these technologies exist. Um, but yes, we need, we need to find ways to put a stop on, on this ball that has been, has been rolling too much. Mm -hmm. It's, it's like a, a, a snowflake that has become an, an, an avalanche. Mm -hmm. It was very good at some point. It has uh, made all of, all of this good technologies and uh, with good effects on society. But that's why you, you cannot you cannot counter it. You can only counter it with effort. Yeah. So this is what what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to do this without uh, having the bias of, of greed. And yeah. if this is possible, yeah, I would be I would be very happy. Yeah, yeah. This is this is what what basically I'm I'm trying to do. Um, and I don't know another way than yeah. than this. Yeah. Um, so, you know that I don't do much marketing for my podcast either. And I think I try to stay from that perspective as well, is that the, the, mo the most important thing for my podcast is not how many people is it going to reach? Because I've seen too much of that attention grabbing thing. And I'm like, tired of that kind of mindset. Um, so... I remember at the beginning when I was starting to put effort into this podcast and do all these recordings, 
my mind would sometimes try to be like, oh, let's see how many people are following that podcast. But I was like, okay, no, that's like a slippery slope. If I start mm-hmm. thinking about that, then it's like my mind slightly changes orientation. And then even when I'm talking to that person, some part of my mind is constantly calculating how optimal is this conversation for the eventual consumption. And I think that just, yeah. So at some point I was like, look, Neil, you just got to do it for whatever value you're getting. And if someone else listens to it, that's great. But, you know, let's not um, pursue that too much. So I've, but I feel like it keeps, it keeps requiring effort. It's not a one-time decision and done. Like a couple of days later, again, I'll feel like, oh my God, why aren't people listening to me? So it feels like a constant effort to keep this greed in check and keep reminding myself it's like again and again, hey, why am I doing this? Okay, this is why I'm doing this. Okay, let's do it, you know? <laughs> so uh, so I kind of, you know, understand the point of view, but it feels like an ongoing effort to keep reminding myself of my values. Um so I want to talk it a little is. bit. Yeah. It is. So I want to talk a little bit more about the Laurel project. So uh, this is how you um, described it in your email: uh, a blockchain without currency. The value stored on it will be provable human effort, such as volunteering, like a non-transferable medal of merit. It will be used for governance, proof of effort, provable news, etc. So until I read that last sentence, initially I was not very sure what the scope of the Laurel project was. I thought it was mostly as a way of um, compensating like volunteer effort, but I didn't realize that you could also include uh, like governance and provable news. So could you describe a little bit more mm-hmm. uh, in like kind of non-technical terms what is the scope of the Laurel project? What are the problems that it seeks to solve? So let's uh, talk about what volunteering means for this project, mm. uh, because it is equivalent to, to karma yoga. Mm. So volunteering is, it is the ultimate freedom that you can have as a human being. It means that you are free to follow your higher ego which means your principles, your values, you are free to put effort in, in, in that part of your, uh, of your ego, um, which you don't necessarily are able to do when you have a normal job because your will is subordinate to the will of the company and a lot of times you don't do things that you find, uh, uh, you might do things that you find immoral. So I see volunteering as the ultimate, ultimate freedom that you can have, working for your higher purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also allows you to do a lot of effort, because when, when you do the effort with an open heart, it, it usually is a lot more effective than if you do something without you wanting to do it because mm-hmm. you put all sorts of obstacles in your path. Mm-hmm. Um, Taking this into consideration, imagine that our current leaders that we have in politics or in other institutions, imagine that you would have their uh, moral background vetted by something like the Laurel Project. Mm. Imagine that they would do this volunteering effort 
um, into maybe different domains in maybe the same domain but doing um, the maybe the lowest paid work imagine them having this experience in in different um, in different areas even from their domain wouldn't you be more um, have more confidence that they would be more considerate in their actions if they would have this amount of experience so this is one of the ideas that's why I think volunteering is a missing piece to to the capitalistic society that we have mm -hmm. um, the communist society had at least in Romania had had some sort of uh, they would call it volunteering they, they would actually call it patriotic work um. it was not volunteering because they would force people to go and uh, even work the land even do do things for society so it wasn't volunteering um, but I, I think real vo volunteering is is missing as an institution in in the cu current world um, and obviously it is very important because we have Wikipedia we have open source we have a lot of people who are willing to put in effort and offer it to others but we don't know exactly who these people are and maybe it would help us to to know because I would have a lot more confidence in people who who I'm sure they did effort hard effort in their in their lives for the benefit of others I would trust them more uh, to be in a position of leadership than somebody who I don't know how they got there and uh, about provable news um, I mentioned in the video how you can have now provable space and time with uh, provable time being um, being implemented by uh, taking the blockchain hashes for that current time and in embedding them in the video uh, so and at the end of the video you can make a transaction to a blockchain to to seal the start and end of the video so you you know exactly for sure when that video was uh, was taken so a transaction means uh means uh, the currency of that blockchain that you need to have it and so on so um volunteering in in this case doesn't come with money so you can have a chain um where you earn the currency by doing volunteer effort it's also a medal but you can also do the, these transactions for proving various things and uh, there are multiple there are many ideas of what this volunteering institution can can be can become um, what is for sure is that it should be decentralized mm. and it should not be controlled by uh, one entity but you you should have a, a hierarchy that is very well defined and people that can uh, take that, that can switch roles in that hierarchy that would be very interesting and it has not been done so be able to to switch roles in an organization so you actually have the experience of of every role so you cannot complain that if you complain that someone else doesn't do a good job you actually know yeah. uh, what that job entails and what they should do and this goes hand in hand with with karma yoga which has this um, requirement that you need to 
have multiple roles, you need to have multiple experiences and um, because you constantly learn by being put in hard situations. Hmm. And by the way, when you were talking about this like patriotic work in communist Romania, I just kind of remembered, I forgot to tell you that I was also actually born in a communist state in India. It was like mm-hmm. deeply communist for a long time since India became independent. Um, and it's not real communism because it's a democracy. So there are like different parties that, you know, we have elections, but the communist party was the strongest one and it got mm-hmm. reelected for 37 years. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not total communism because it's just a state of India. So it still has to ask the central government for money and things like that. So it's not true communism, but a lot of the ethos was uh, that of communism, where the values that were um, disapproved were the values of greed and like getting things for yourself and wealth and things like that. The values that were approved were the values of, you know, basically working for the government and doing things like social safety net. Both of my parents work for the government, by the way. And that was like the main source of employment uh, is to get into a government job. And if you get into a government job, you cannot be fired. You mm-hmm. basically can exist in that job, whether or not you work until the you know, rest of your life. And so this, this was what, like one of the issues of the communism is that it created a lot of complacency. Um, people could, of course, create workers' unions. And then those workers' unions could have like a strike anytime they want. Like, oh, we're we not going to work, you know. So I feel like the work ethic um, dropped quite a lot. The industriousness of my state started really falling back. There was too much politics all the time and the politicization of everything compared to a lot of the rest of India, which you know, just kept marching on ahead with like doing more stuff and all of the uh, the good talent and the meritorious people started leaving my state to either go somewhere else or leave the country. And so it just became kind of infamous. Like my state became kind of infamous as, oh, you guys just do politics and sit and talk about politics and blah, blah, blah. And you just philosophize about stuff, but nothing really gets done. And the Communist Party also had becomes so filled with this it's like oh yeah they're going to keep voting us back in power and at some point in my lifetime i think i was in high school they finally fell like some other party came to power and then since then the communist party has kind of disappeared from my state but Mm -hmm. a lot of the mentality kind of remains the same because it's just the same people like a lot of them are the same people so i was like yeah yeah, okay I, i kind of forgot to mention that a lot of the ethos that I grew up with was also kind of the same. It's like, you know, what is going to be the impact of your work? Like, are you like doing things or are you doing things to get money? And if you're doing things to get money, even if you get a lot of money, people don't like you, which is quite different from like what I experienced in the U.S., where what is the picture that is worshipped? I mean, Donald Trump became president. I mean, a person like that in India, everyone go, what the hell is this like arrogant, you know, like he just keeps showing off his wealth. It's not even something that most people would idolize. But here, a lot of people idolize that. Oh, look how much money and power this person has. So I feel like, you know, the ethos are quite different. Okay, big segue. But uh, I wanted to come back to this topic of provable news. So um, 
Um, so yes, the, you know, the, the ideas are kind of interesting. One small thing, one small application is that I have noticed that um, nowadays sometimes some crucial information like the results of some very crucial vote or something, the Associated Press will put it on the blockchain or something like that so mm -hmm. that you cannot go back and tamper with what that information was. And that seems to be like a small little example of what you could say, like uh, you know, provable news, you can like trace it back to, you know, so that you can. So um, something that I've been generally thinking about is that with all of our innovations in technology, um, it can become harder to pin down what is true. And one of the examples is like these deep fake videos. I'm using that as just one example, but I think with innovations in technology in all directions, I mean, this is what a lot of the machine learning world is doing, how to make stuff that looks real. And you've got like generative adversarial networks and things mm -hmm. like that. How can you make something that the human will think is real? Um, so, um, and yeah, I kind of linked to that video of like, you know, there was this deep fake of Volodymyr Zelensky apparently saying, mm -hmm. oh, the Ukrainians should surrender. And if you're kind of careful, you look at that video, I'm like, that looks kind of fishy. That doesn't look real. But I feel like there's a section of the population, for example, my dad, he keeps falling for like videos on the internet. Well, I mean, that's not real. But he, he does not have that calibration to understand what is real and what is not, especially because he did not grow up like me in the era of the internet being exposed to a lot of data. He went directly from a generation where there was five minutes of evening news, which was pretty much true. Um, and then he came into this world of internet where anyone can put any information up there. And a lot of the time, just because he sees someone talk about it and it's like a white person wearing a lab coat, he's like, oh, this must be true. Um, so I think deep fix, even today, even if they're not 100% convincing, I'm pretty sure some fraction of the population really thought that was Zelensky. Um, and as this technology gets better and better, what I'm worried about is at some point it might become like really hard to tell like what's real and what's not. Um, like it kind of seems like an evolutionary arms race. On the one hand, our technology that is trying to get better at detecting what's real. And on the other hand, it's technology that's trying to get better at fooling you. Um, so how, and how that's do you feel about a, and that, that? I think that is very good because okay. it will force us to actually think about how to prove things more exactly. Mm. So w we have an idea about how you could you could solve with uh, with deep fakes, but I'm I'm going to to, to only tell you this. Mm. You need to think about th the problem is how can you prove that something has happened in a certain space and a certain time, making sure that the time was continuous. And there are ways to prove it, but it will require a bit more effort and attention from, from our part, especially from figures that are public and like uh, the president, president of Ukraine. Mm. Um, but I think this is, these obstacles and problems will push us to find 
better technical solutions for the for the next generation and it will force us to become smarter hmm. it's as you said it is an an evolutionary thing and we are as a society we are growing we are evolving we're becoming smarter we have better tools than we we've ever had and it's just a, a part of the journey like hackers uh doing all all this um forcing security forcing developers who um handle security issues to become even smarter to have mm. even better solutions so this of course it's it's a game of of yeah. evolution in the end yeah and uh, as much as i i could compare this uh, the, the the deep fakes with what happens now in the news hmm. because you don't get you you only get opinions and descriptions of what happened so this will force the media to actually find ways to give us the actual proof with the actual data of what happened instead of just telling us about it mm-hmm. in their own words <laughs> and i think this is a very good thing when going back to the childhood thing if you get true data factual data you can have a much better opinion than if you get predigested information and conclusions yeah 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 and i hope this will be the result of having all these deep fakes yeah. the result mm. should be that we are actually going to get uh, the the truth yeah well i mean it's very refreshing to see that you kind of like have an optimistic viewpoint on this um but i'll confess how i feel about this sometimes it's like you know when like uh, some technology is getting better and the technology to counter it is getting better and the technology blah blah it just like this i kind of feel like we are having to run faster and faster to stay in the same place like you know we are on a treadmill and the treadmill is getting faster and faster and we have to keep running faster and faster just to stay in the same place and it feels kind of like tiring sometimes to me it's like can everyone all of the technology just stop <laughs> just everyone just stop doing what you're doing and let's just go and hang out in a beach for a couple of years so i mean i do kind of feel like a lot of the time i think like humans are doing too much you know maybe maybe everyone could just like stop and chill for some time do you ever like feel like that we cannot stop yeah <laughs> um but i think we have uh, we have a duty for just because we've been given this time on on this earth yeah however uh, for, for for better or worse we have an experience and it's i think any experience it's is better than no experience so yeah. in a way we have a duty to at least live leave uh, this society better off than when we came into it yeah Yeah. So if uh, if all this effort and activity and uh the effects of this will be a better society for the future and I I th- I think it will. I think the world is getting more moral, not mm-hmm. less moral. I think the world at least physical violence is lesser is um is lower now than it has been in the in in the past mm-hmm. uh and i think it will get better we are already talking a lot about emotional violence yeah. about things that's before we didn't even talk about yeah 
So I think the world is getting better. Maybe we're not that great now at it, or we're not. But I think it's um, if you use technology for trying to build tools for truth and collaboration, mm -hmm. I think we will get a, a better world than than yeah. we had. Yeah. Um, I just remembered in your email response to me, you said that you wanted to uh, make an announcement. Was it about the Laurel project or about provable news or something? Is this something that we have not gone over already? Then no, yes, it, it. it is about the, the Laurel project. Yeah. So what the Laurel project wants to do is prove effort mm -hmm. and for example, for proving effort, because the first effort that needs to be proven is uh, the actual development of the Laurel project. Mm -hmm. So the first tool used for proving effort is GitHub, which yeah. is a public site uh, where the code lives and you can see exactly who uh, developed what. Mm -hmm. And for me, actually, GitHub was extremely important. I don't have a background in computer science. Oh. So what... Oh, okay. What helped someone like like me was my effort and being able to demonstrate that effort. Mm. And GitHub was a very big part. So these these tools for proving effort are are very important in in our next society mm -hmm. and in the society of today. Mm -hmm. And that's why software development. I I changed I changed my career. To be in this space where it seemed that um, there were better principles, there was more openness and more meritocracy. Hmm. And this is the way forward hmm. for, for us all. Um, and then um, what, what we will have is email integration. So this hasn't been done in the blockchain space. And we want to have email integration for the Laurel project because you need to prove, for example, that you've sent an email to an institution. Hmm. So this is part of the of the political discussion where you want to prove if, if you if you have. I'll take my country's example. We have a lot of corruption and even institutional corruption. It may you may have a problem and send an email to the police department and you may never hear from them again. Hmm. So it, th these things can happen. And we want a tool that can demonstrate uh, publicly that you have sent some email to an institution and they should be giving you a response because if you only base yourself on the institutions, they can be corrupt and mm -hmm. you will not find uh, the truth. Um, and all of this is, is based on effort with the idea that if you put in the work, mm -hmm. you already you already demonstrate goodwill. Yeah. And who will who no no person who wants to be a scammer, which by definition is a person who wants to get rich without doing the work, mm -hmm. will do the work. So it's it's uh, we're starting with this with this baseline of yeah. proving effort. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm really kind of impressed and I appreciate the rate at which, you know, it seems like you keep coming up with like new ideas 
<laughs> I was like, wow. It seems like last week you were thinking of some idea and you were like developing some prototype. And this week you're thinking of some like other idea and it's like they keep coming. And so imagine when we'll have volunteers. Yeah. We, we know exactly what to what what type of work to to give them. Yeah. And if uh, if 10 people would come. Yeah. It would be something incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you the last question for this like technology section of the podcast. It's kind of a pretty like speculative hypothetical question. Uh, do you have any like broad ideas or imaginations or visions for what you think the future of human society is going to look like? Let's say in our lifetime, future of human society and technology. Any, any ideas on any aspect of that that you've been thinking about? I think uh, I think morality and ethics will be a big part of society. Hmm. We've been we've been toying around with, for, for example, even changing our diets hmm. to not kill animals. Yeah. Um, we have all sorts of people uh, being whistleblowers. Some real whistleblowers. Some maybe not so real. But I see the Laurel Project as um, also as um, an organization of auditors, mm -hmm. of moral auditors, of other companies, of the, of the, the state institutions. And I think this is something that is, is needed. You need people that can be unbiased that do not depend with uh, with their livelihood on 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 that company or on some institution you need an international uh, organization uh, so you are not you do not depend of um, um, of a government in in one nation um, and we we need an institution of whistleblowers. Mm -hmm. That's something that volunteers can also be. Mm. They need to provide value mm. where they are. So if they volunteer for, for an institution, they need to provide value, uh, provable value, because otherwise this doesn't work. Mm -hmm. You need to, to prove goodwill. You need to prove uh, that you are unbiased um, and that you actually want the best for, for society. You work for the benefit of society. So I, I see the Laurel Project as part of this future society. Otherwise, I wouldn't put this mm -hmm. much effort in it. Mm -hmm. And it goes hand in hand with technology that, uh, that is, that where you put more effort into thinking about what effects that technology will have on society. Mm. And this goes into, into another discussion about uh, karma yoga and raja. Raja Yoga, mm -hmm. um, because you, as a developer, if you build tools for other people, you need to think a bit about the effects of what you're building. You do make uh, choices, design choices in your software to, to make it go one way or another. Mm -hmm. So I think this will become very important, uh, even though maybe it doesn't seem like it. 
but it is the, the perfect counterpart to capitalism, which has a, a lot of good parts. As you, as you also said, the, um, if you have a, a society based on pure communism where um, you don't change that much, you don't do much. Mm -hmm. So capitalism is very good at being very, very able to create value for others because that's where the money comes from. Mm -hmm. But you need a counterpart. Mm -hmm. Thanks for joining me and Loredana in the Room of Lives today. In the next part, we talk about her journey in spirituality and psychedelics and how they inspired her towards karma yoga, the spiritual path of selfless service, and how she is trying to implement such an idea using blockchain technology. Mm -hmm.